Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Let's begin in prayer. We're going to pray for the repose of Roger and also for, uh, for Anne's father, Donald, and all those that are sick in our ICC family, all those that are sick and suffering in our, in our communities, churches, our priests, with the lockdown uh, going on and all the challenges we face, we bring all these uh, to the feet of our Lord. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come and dwell within us. Cleanse us of all stain and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our speaker this evening is a professor of Greek, Latin, history, and patristics at Our Lady of Guadalupe Seminary in Denton, Nebraska. His master's degree is in classical Greek and Latin, and his doctorate is in the Fathers of the Church. He has published on the Fathers of the Church and on contemporary church history, particularly Vatican II in the liturgy in the 20th century. So I hope you will join me in welcoming our speaker this evening, Dr. John Pacino. Well, hello, everyone. And I'm glad to be here again. So tonight, Alexander the Great. It seems strange, right? I mean, we're in a, this is a Catholic outfit. You think the history began just when our Lord was incarnate, and that's all we have to talk about. Some people put the beginning of history even more recently, like 1962 to 1965. But remember that history is made by human beings, whether in conformity with or in opposition to the will of God, if that even can be known. So here we're going to look at uh, it's kind of a remarkable young man. He died when he was 33, but as we know, you can do a lot by the time you're 33. <laughs> Our Lord did, and Alexander did too. In fact, I'm going to begin this evening's discussion of Alexander the Great, 4th century BC, Macedonian slash Greek general who conquered all that there was to worth conquering in his day, with a quotation from Warren Carroll. Now, remember, Warren Carroll is one of the founders of Christendom College, and there are many connections between the Institute of Catholic Culture and Christendom College. So I'm going to cover, if you like, this presentation under the aegis and the watchful eye of our dear doctor, who says this is in the founding of Christendom. This is what he says of Alexander the Great. It's a great chapter of his, by the way. Much of what I say tonight will be will rely on what he said. He said this, In just 13 years, the world was to be transformed as no single mortal man before or since has transformed it, united and ordered it all the way from Greece to the shrouded heart of India. A whole new amalgamated civilization of West and Middle East, created by a march across the world, led by the greatest commander of this 
or any other age. So this is really nearly hyperbolic praise by a very good historian who knew history from the beginning to his own day. And that's what he said, because indeed, think of the great men, particularly military men, who have in one way or another molded the world we live in. So think, for example, of Napoleon. Here is a map of the conquests of Napoleon in Europe. All the red and orange represent what he conquered in a very short period of time. It's quite remarkable, really. Napoleon, indeed, was a remarkable man. Here is Napoleon in his splendor, an emperor, nearly divine. But who was Napoleon's hero, you may ask? Well, one of Napoleon's heroes was Caesar. He wrote a commentary on Caesar's Gallic Wars. So this brings us to Caesar. What did Caesar do that was so great? So Napoleon, early 1800s. Caesar, the 50s and 40s of the last century before Christ. What did Caesar accomplish? Well, if you look on the map, it's actually not that much. It's just this orange bit. But Caesar did go to Britain and into Germany a bit. He also was an administrator in Spain for a while. And it can be said, I think, that Caesar, in addition to conquering and allowing other Romans to conquer more of Europe, also allowed for there to be, in fact, a Roman Empire as opposed to a republic. Here is an image of Julius Caesar in his own day. Here's another one. So that's what he looked like. And what was his accomplishment? He brought the Roman language, the Roman law, and the Roman know-how, engineering, military strategy, to Gaul and future conquests after him. But what did he look up to? And I'm going to read to you now from a book I recommend to you. Some of you may have read bits and pieces. It is this book, Plutarch's Lives. Plutarch was a, he wrote in Greek, actually, which is very much in the theme for tonight. And he wrote biographies of various very famous ancient men, and sometimes he compared them. And he has this to say about Julius Caesar, and I'll give you that quote right now. So this is from Plutarch's Lives. We are told that as he, Caesar, was crossing the Alps and passing by a barbarian village which had very few inhabitants and was a sorry sight, his companions, these would be Julius Caesar's companions, fellow officers, administrators, asked with mirth and laughter, can it be that here too in this hamlet, there are ambitious strifes for office, struggles for primacy, and mutual jealousies of powerful men? In other words, is this little hamlet like Rome? Whereupon Caesar said to them in all seriousness, I would rather be first here than second at Rome. Very famous anecdote of Caesar. That set the stage, what kind of man he is. But then later, once he's tribune, junior administrator in Spain. In like manner we, manner, we are told that in Spain, when he was at leisure and was reading from the history of Alexander, he was lost in thought for a long time and then burst into tears. His friends were astonished and asked the reason for these tears. 
Do you not think, said he, it is a matter for sorrow that while Alexander, at my age, was already king of so many peoples, I have, as yet, achieved no brilliant success. In other words, for men like the Romans, and many men afterwards, whether Trajan and Pompey had the same thing to say, Alexander is the bar for excellence. If you can do what Alexander did, you have made something of yourself. So who is Alexander? Here are his dates. He's born in July of 356 BC, and he dies in the night of the 10th to the 11th of June of 323 BC. Such a short span. What kind of a man was he? Well, I think I'll just give you a few anecdotes from various parts of his life, just so you can see the kind of man he is. The first anecdote is from the childhood of Alexander. It goes like this. He's 10 or 12, and a man offered to sell this big, vigorous black stallion to his father, Philip, who was the king of this little Balkan state called Macedonia. I'll show you the map in a moment. This was a wild horse, and no one could contain it. And Alexander, he's 10, 11, 12, says, I could manage this horse better than anyone else can. And, of course, everyone makes fun of the boy. But Alexander was able to see that the stallion was afraid of his own shadow, you see. So he turned the stallion around facing the sun, no shadow. He leapt onto the stallion's back and bolted off with the boy on there. And a short time later, Alexander came, out, came back with the exhausted stallion. So that's the boy. And Ale so Philip, the father of Alexander, who was a little bit afraid, looked him in the eye and said, my son, seek for yourself a kingdom equal to yourself. Macedonia has no room for you, Macedonia being small. That's also reported in Plutarch in the life of Alexander. Here's another story. And this is where we find Alexander nearly touching heaven with his hand. He's consulting the oracle at Delphi, as many pious Greeks did. But he happened to show up on a day when it was, according to the superstition of the time, not auspicious to consult the oracle. The oracle usually would be a woman who was able to prophesy in answering questions. And so she refused to perform her office as oracle and prophetess for Alexander, who'd come with a pressing question. And he dragged her out of the temple by the ankle, the, the great prophetess. He, wasn't, he was not patient. And she looked him in the eye and said, and this turned out to be her oracle, thou art invincible, my son. And Alexander said, that's all I wanted to hear. Now I know. And then an another anecdote that takes place uh, in Asia Minor, but I'm going to reserve that to when we get to Asia Minor with Alexander. But it's very revealing of his character. And those of you who are in the Cincinnati area and listen to the Sunshine Radio that Annie Mitchell is the hostess of, you've heard this anecdote already. So let's go to uh, the background of Alexander. And what is Macedonia and what is Greece? So let's take um, a peek at uh, a map that will give us an idea, really, of where uh, the man is from. 
So we're going to go to Greece and Macedonia. I'll show you that very quickly here. Here we are. Let me expand that a bit. You recognize Greece here, the Peloponnesus and so forth. Let's expand it a bit. Macedonia, which is a country today again, is this area just north of Greece. And the Macedonians are not strictly speaking Greeks. There are Balkan people who adopt a lot of the culture, language, and outlook of their neighbors to the south. This really is where he's from. Now, at this time, the Persians, who had caused so much trouble to the Greeks, have retreated. They have Asia Minor here, modern Turkey, but they're no longer in the Aegean. And all the little Greek colonies and islands here are once again out from under the Persians. But the Persians had left a very bad memory of their presence. And after the Persians retreated, Athens is the country or the city, I should say, that imposed itself in a kind of empire. There was a clash with Sparta, which led to the famous Peloponnesian Wars from 431 on, which took place around here. The Spartans win, but then Athens, and, but then, and they control the empire, but then the Athenians rebel. Long story short, by the time Alexander is a little boy, the Persians are at home, and the Greeks, the Spartans, the Athenians, and all their allies have been weakened by what we might call a civil war among the Greeks, so to speak. So that in part is going to explain, I think, the success, the early successes of fa Alexander's father and of Alexander himself. So his father, Philip, from, he is from 382 to 336. What did he do to prepare Macedonia for Alexander? He instituted a universal national service. All young men had to serve in his army, and he improved the army. And most famously, he improved what is known as the phalanx. Now, those of you who uh, were in my history class will remember this picture. The phalanx is a system whereby you have a bunch of soldiers in a row in neat lines, and these soldiers hold these immensely long um, pikes, which allow them uh, to rebuff any kind of enemy onslaught. It looks like this, all right? So you see all these men in neat rows, a bit like a hedgehog, and these pikes were lengthened under Philip to nearly 20 feet long. So that's a pretty long pike. And in war, in battles, they started to use a mixture of various arms. The phalanx, skirmish infantry, archers, light cavalry, heavy cavalry, and even siege engines in different tactics to overwhelm their enemies. And Philip indeed is going to be able to expand Macedonia this way. He marries a Greek woman, a princess called Olympias. And from that union comes Alexander. So Alexander is of a Macedonian father and a Greek mother. He's binational, you might say. And they take over the north of Greece. Thessaly, Thrace, uh, even Thermopylae, a famous battle, but not this is not a, through bribery. And ultimately, there's going to be a big clash between Athens and Thebes in alliance against Philip in Boeotia in 338 BC. 
And this battle is important not only because Philip won the battle, but also it was the first time that Alexander was given a command. He's a very young man. He led the cavalry and broke enemy resistance then, and this allowed his father to get to the Athenians and ultimately to form a pan-Hellenic uh, union of which Macedonia is the leader. And then he dies. Philip does. And this is 336, and Alexander succeeds to him. He is now king of Macedonia and leader of Greece, we might say. And he's going to transform the world he inherits. And thanks to Alexander, for the first time, the world is going to be Western. We take that for granted today. We go to Japan, Singapore, South Africa, South America. And pretty much everywhere we go, people at least understand a European language, whether it's Spanish or English or something else. And everyone dresses the way we do, more or less, right? Trousers and shirts that batten down the front. But it wasn't always so. Once upon a time, the Western way of doing things, the European way of doing things, didn't even count. But with Alexander, it will count. It, through Alexander, for the first time, the West conquers. There was a television series some years ago called The Triumph of the West. It's really with Alexander that that begins. He inherits his father's resolve and political smarts, his mother's passion. He's a well-trained, from a a well-disciplined boy intellectually, because his teacher was the Aristotle. The Macedonians imported the best and the brightest from Greece, and they imported Aristotle to be the tutor to Alexander. And Alexander is going to make the best of, of that mental discipline he acquires from Aristotle. And he's a man of unbelievable ambition. His, his ambition is to reign all the land as far as the sea. In other words, Wherever you can walk, I shall reign. And Napoleon was the same. And indeed, it is reported that he said to Zeus, the king of the gods, you Zeus hold Olympus, I set the earth beneath me. And he is a man of providence. Father Hezekiah was mentioning this. Like other pagans, like uh, Cyrus of the Persians before him, who, though a pagan, not only allowed the Jews to go home, but even sent money for them to rebuild the temple. Think of the wife of Pilate, pagan lady, who had a dream from God, which she, and she told Pilate, have nothing to do with that man, meaning our Lord Jesus Christ. Warren Carroll himself goes so far as to believe that Alexander was somehow led by an actual divine inspiration. I'll leave it up to you to judge whether you think that's going too far or not. But what is for sure is that Alexander did play a role, I think, in Providence. So, his early campaigns, the young king, Alexander, he's 20. He goes north first to pacify the barbarians that were pressing on Macedonia. Not surprisingly, the Macedonians were in the south in Greece, so that across the Danube, some barbarians try to come down. He crushes them, and he crosses the Danube with rafts that he has his soldiers improvise. Then he crosses over into Asia. Let's take a look at that. So this, I mean, it shows you the extent of the empire, but he begins over here and he goes over to Troy. Now it's interesting, Alexander is very much looking towards the future, he's going to conquer the world, but he reaches back to the epic beginnings of the Greeks as a nation, and that's the War of Troy, Homer's great poem. He stops at Troy to offer a sacrifice there and to offer a garland 
at the tomb of Achilles, one of the great heroes of um, the War at Troy. In fact, he's the first hero mentioned in the Iliad. And he takes the shield, the holy shield of Achilles from the temple. He sees himself as an epic hero. And he challenges, and this is really, there are a few battles, I'm not going to go through all the battles, but just the principal ones. The battle of Granicus opens Asia to him, and he completely routs the Persians, who are unable to resist his phalanx plus cavalry tactics. The phalanx head on, the cavalry from the side to hit the enemy through its flanks, irresistible. Now, it is true that the Persians had a good fleet, which they massed all around here, and the Greeks didn't have, or certainly Alexander did not have such a fleet. So again, Alexander sees straight to the essence of things. He's not distracted. He simply says, well, they want to be at sea. Let them be at sea. He doesn't go to sea. But what he does do is invest all of the ports along here to make it impossible for the Persians to dock their boats anymore. And that's how he, get, he skirts the danger offered by the Persian fleet. Then he goes through Gordium. All right, I have to stop here for a minute because I want to tell you about uh, Gordium. And many of you will know this story because it is super classic. It is the story of the Gordian knot. There was in Gordium a very complicated knot made of rope that attached the tongue of a chariot, I think either to the yoke or to the chariot itself. And it was said, the prophecy was, if you can untie this very difficult, very tight, compact knot, you will conquer all of Asia. And the famous story is, he looks at, takes one look at it. This is the knot? Yes. If I, if I solve that knot, I'm the king of all of Asia? Yes. Well then, pulls out his sword, slices it in two, it simply falls apart. Okay, good to go. That's the man that he was. Then you saw he goes down into Egypt, and it's along, and he's going to defeat actually King Darius the third of the Persians. Along the way, he stops and takes the island of Tyre, T-Y-R-E. This is a famous island mentioned many times in the Old Testament where they were very skilled artisans who helped Solomon build the temple, the men from Tyre. It was a famous city. And how does he take it? No boats, Alexander. He actually extends the land. He has his men with shovels extend the landmass of Asia out to the island and takes it over. And from that day forward, Tyre will be nothing anymore. Listen to Ezekiel. Ezekiel prophesied that this would happen. So in a sense, Alexander is present in the Old Testament in prophecy. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, behold, I come against thee, O Tyre, and I will cause many nations to come up to thee as the waves of the sea rise up. Because the Macedonian army was composed of all sorts of people at this time. Greeks, meaning Athenian Spartans, Boeotians, and Thebans, and others. And they shall break down the walls of Tyre and destroy the towers thereof. And I will scrape her dust from her and make her like a smooth rock, which is exactly what happened. Became a smooth rock island, no more buildings. She shall be a drying place for nets in the midst of the sea. And that was the destiny of Tyre. From that day forth, it was only a place for fishermen to stop and dry their nets. 
how the mighty have fallen, and Tyre was amongst them. While he's in Egypt, by the way, he doesn't conquer Egypt through battle. The priests of Egypt hail him as their king, Pharaoh. And he founds the first of many Alexandrias. A dozen cities across the Middle East and Near East are called Alexandria. He founded them all. And the famous Alexandria of Egypt is founded by him. This is the Alexandria that's going to be the center of what will be called, not Hellenic, meaning Greek, but Hellenistic culture. And it is Macedonian Greeks who are going to rule Egypt as pharaohs until the Romans take it. Cleopatra is ultimately descended from these Macedonian Greeks. All right, it is going to be, and I'll get to this at the end of the lecture, but it is going to be Egypt, a Greek-speaking, magnificent kingdom. Here, the greatest library the world had ever seen is going to be assembled, a library that is going to found the sciences of what we call philology, meaning the comparison of manuscript texts to see what the old man, Homer, really said. All of Greek literary production is going to be assembled in this library and combed over by scholars now. And indeed, not very long after the, the events I'm talking about, less than 100 years later, even the holy books of the Hebrews will be put into Greek in Alexandria. And that Greek Old Testament, translated by 70 Palestinian bilingual scholars brought in for the purpose, it's called the Septuagint, is going to be the Bible that the writers of the Gospels and the writers of the Epistles, St. Paul and and St. And Peter and others, are going to use when reporting the words of the Old Testament that our Lord quotes, or even all of them. It is from that Greek Old Testament. Why was it in Greek? Ultimately, because Alexander made of Egypt a Greek kingdom. And that same Greek Bible, Old Testament, was believed by many Christians from then to this day, including St. Augustine, to have been an actually inspired translation. So the text is translated, I mean, the Hebrew is inspired, of course, but even the translation is inspired according to St. Augustine and others. The Greek language becomes a sacred language, the same Greek language that Alexander brought there and everywhere else. On his way back from Egypt, of course, he has to go up and he goes by Jerusalem. Now, what was Jerusalem at this point? At what time in the history of the Jewish nation are these events taking place? They're taking place after the Babylonian captivity, the Jews are back. They've rebuilt the temple and they have settled. In fact, I'm going to quote the Italian church historian, uh, Father Ricciotti, on this period of the history of the Jews. Simply nothing occurred, he says, during this period, which merited to be handed down, because there's, until you get to the Maccabees, there's, there's no scripture about this. And the life of the community of Jerusalem settled down to a methodical routine, only rarely disturbed by an internal event deser deserving of note, and even more rarely by any extraordinary development. So in other words, Jerusalem, Judah, is a backwater province of the Persian Empire. And yet, Alexander has to go through there to get to Egypt and back out again. Was there, this is the tantalizing question, I think, was there contact 
between Alexander and the people of God? And the answer is yes, there was. And let me tell you about that. So he takes, now, uh, he does take Samaria, which, remember, Persian province, and he settles it with Macedonians. He kills the Persian governor of the place. So that's Samaria. But then regarding Jerusalem, we have now, this is from Josephus, the Jewish historian of the first century AD. And he says that he was shown by the priests of the temple the prophecy of Daniel about a mighty Greek king who would conquer the Persian Empire. And Josephus takes this anecdote as being the reason for which Alexander spared Jerusalem. He didn't besiege it. He didn't attack it. He left it alone. And he knew that once he had defeated the Persians completely, that Judea would be part of his kingdom. So he felt no reason to attack them, and Jerusalem was spared by Alexander. Thank God, but again, providentially. Then he moved on. Now, here's a big battle I have to show to you. Back again to the map of his conquests. He comes here. This is the Battle of Arbela. So he crosses over three Iraq, and we're really into Iran now. Here's Arbela. You see it? It's called also um, Gaugemala in 331 BC. And this is where the Persians are definitively defeated. The Battle of Arbela, 331 BC, is the triumph of the West. It has been the object, it's, it's a resonant battle. It's been painted. Uh, let's take a look at this painting. Now, this painting is by Bruegel, the Flemish painter. There's Alexander right in the middle. You see him, he's on the white horse, of course, with his sword. And it's a gigantic painting. It's worth looking at if you're ever at the museum. I think it's in Belgium. But uh, we know from Plutarch that everyone read in the Middle Ages and later that this was the battle that gave Asia to him. This is the battle where West and East met and West won. Hence the painting. And how did he defeat them? Now, the Persians had a very frightening, heavy uh, armament, which will remind you of Ben-Hur, if you've seen that. It's the chariot whose axles end in long blades that were around. Okay? And the chariot goes through infantry and chops up all the men on either side. It was very effective, but Alexander knew about this. And he told his men, okay, I know you've been trained as a phalanx to remain still and hold on to your pikes. But when I give the signal, disperse. And they were, they were well known for being extremely well disciplined. So he gave the signal, blast of the trumpet, and they knew to get out of the way of the chariots. So the chariots would come full on, thinking they were going to defeat the phalanx completely. And they just end up in the middle of a battlefield. Where did everyone go? And then his cavalry could come in from the sides, which is much more nimble than chariots, and cut them to pieces with their chariots too. He stays a month in Babylon, rests. And then he moves on to Persepolis. Persepolis was the capital of the Persian Empire. So let me just very quickly show you where that is so you can see how deep he's gone so far. Here's Persepolis down here, you see. But he's not done. From Persepolis, he's going to go around here. And we may have lost a sense of proportion here just from the map. Bactria 
is Afghanistan. And that is how far he goes up here. He goes as far as Afghanistan. And the Afghanis remember him. In fact, Alexander is important for us. I said Caesar, Trajan, Pompey, Napoleon. But Alexander has left a memory among all those peoples too. There's Arabic literature about Alexander. There's Pashtun literature about Alexander. The, the Afghanis remember Alexander. To such an extent even, now this is a fa uh, fantasy, but based on some facts, some of you may have read a book by Rudyard Kipling called The Man Who Would Be King, which was also made into a film with Sean Connery and Michael Caine, in which he imagines two imperial British sergeants, really, they're NCOs, this is the 19th century, who've heard of a kingdom up in the north, north and west of India, where there's a legend that a, a Westerner was to, to come back and take over, and they go there. And, okay, this is a story, but it's, it's pregnant. And the fact that Rudyard Kipling wrote this indicates to you how in the late 19th and early 20th century, Europeans or Englishmen still felt the presence of Alexander today. They go into battle. There's a battle between warring tribes. And one of the sergeant's uh, leather strap here on his uniform gets an arrow in it, but he doesn't die of it. Everyone falls to their faces, and they claim him as the reincarnation of Sakandar. Alexander. And from then on, he becomes the king, a very just king. But it ends badly for him. The whole story is about how hubris and pride leads to a fall. But still, that's there. And the uh, part of the trouble that some of the tribes in northern Afghanistan had under the Taliban is that they worshipped the 12 gods on the mountain. And anthropologists tell us that those are, in fact, the 12 gods of Mount Olympus, the Olympian gods. So the religion of the Greeks remained there. And I'll get back to that also, because there's a weird syncretism between Greek pagan, uh, the Greek pagans and the gods and Buddhism. We'll look at that at the end. So I don't want to restrict our conversation tonight only to the Western perspective of Alexander, because he was truly a worldwide leader. Now, when he's out there in the middle of Iran today, it's a long way from home, but he's not just a conqueror. He is also an administrator and an organizer. And at this point, he tells his Greek soldiers, you can go home or you can stay with me and we'll go to the end of the world. Most of them stay with him. Also, in terms of organizing the empire, he decrees that Persian and Greek will be equal under him. He will be the king emperor and all other races will be equal and subject to him. He adopts, adopts the court etiquette of the Persian emperors with a kind of a godlike veneration, which the Macedonians chafed at a little bit because they knew Alexander from a boy. They didn't really feel like putting their foreheads into the dust before him. And he continues his conquests after that. He goes up into the Hindu Kush in 329. And interestingly is, now ultimately, the leader of the Persians, Darius III, who lost to Alexander, actually lost because he was assassinated by his own, um, the members of his own staff. And Alexander is going to pursue the staff who gave him his victory 
and he catches the satrap. A satrap is a governor. He catches the Persian satrap. His name was Bessus, who had killed Darius. And far from rewarding him, he put him to death as an example of what happens to traitors. Even the traitor of his enemy, he punished. Anyway, and he ultimately goes to Kazakhstan. Let me see if I can show you a map with all of the towns um, he founded. It's actually, I mean, it really is something uh, quite remarkable. Here it is. Just a, a quick map. Now, this is the map of the empire without showing his actual conquests. Let me expand that for you. So everybody knows the famous Alexandria over here in Egypt. But then as he got into actually the bigger part of his empire, the Far Eastern end, look at all the Alexandria here. Here, 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 here. He went through Samarkand, fabled city. And by the time he got on the other side of the river Indus, he named this town after his horse. He was tired of naming them after himself, I guess. Okay, my horse gets one too. It nearly becomes whimsical in the end. So much winning that it becomes nearly a joke how much he can win. So he names a town after his horse. And that Alexander in Kazakhstan is going to remain a Greek city with Greek coins, Greek statues, Greek men, and the Greek language until it is conquered in 30 BC by the Chinese Han dynasty. In other words, Alexander went so far east that he founded a kingdom that was close enough to China to become a part of the Chinese empire later on. It beggars imagination. In fact, while he was over there, there was a rebellion because he was so far away. And he crushed that rebellion, not through force of arms, but by marrying a local princess, Roxanne. And I have to say the name Roxanne always surprises me because it sounds like such a modern name, right? There's a song by the police, Roxanne, and yet it's the name of this ancient wife of a demigod, okay, I'll say the word, who conquered all the way to Kazakhstan. It's amazing. But this was never enough. Alexander was the kind of man who, if you'd asked him, all right, Alexander, what is your limit? Everyone, Every man has a limit, how much money he wants to make or how far he wants to go. What is your answer to that, Alexander? And his answer would simply be, I just want more, always more. He would never end. Now he needs to conquer India, India with its elephants and its monkeys and its bizarre polytheism. So he goes down the Indus Valley. Now we're in 327. And the very first king of all of India on the Indian side, his name was Chandragupta Maurya. Having measured the kind of man that Alexander said, claimed this man will take all India, there's no doubt. And he went city after city after city. There's a unique battle where he had to confront 200 elephants, and he outflanked them. He sent his army 16 miles out of the way, out across a river, where there was an island, and massed them there. And then he was able to come upon the side of the Indian elephant cavalry unaware. And then the infantry dashed in, and they simply crawled under the elephants and put their pikes through their hearts and killed them that way. And that was the end of the elephant army. Now he wants to go south all the way to the Bay of Bengal. 
just saying these faraway places is astounding. And that was the last challenge. Now, the King of Bengal had 200,000 infantrymen and 4,000 elephants. This might be too big even for Alexander to bite. And the men are exhausted. They want to go home, these Macedonians, Greeks, Persians, or Egyptians, all these people. So he makes 12 altars to the Olympian gods and goes no farther. He just goes straight to the water. And he, uh, by the way, at this point, it has to be said that at this particular point, Alexander and his army are getting a little bit berserk. This is the point of his conquest where he does allow himself and his men uh, to commit needless massacres. They're just tired of it. And they just kill everything in sight. And they just keep going. And they've stopped thinking. Now, that's the end of the rope. And he gets uh, an arrow wound, which is going to cost him. He's weakened. He is able to go back. He goes on the Arabian Sea. So he's sailing back. As he sails back, he goes back into the middle of the kingdom to see how things are going. And he purges the corrupt governors he had set up. You can imagine while he was gone how things went. He punishes the governors and he punishes the men who'd given themselves over to looting. Some of these Macedonians just held themselves to the riches they found there. After all, Persia was also a great and ancient and rich civilization, and he puts them to death, even though they're his own countrymen. Now, before he goes home, again, I want to talk a little bit about administration. One of the things he did, now, it's all well and good to say Persian and Greek will be equal, but the way he really wants to cement this is that he compels 10,000 of his men, Macedonians and Greeks, to marry Persian wives. He really wants to forge a new hybrid people who would be united in their obedience to him, ultimately, really. He establishes Greek military schools in all of these cities, whether ancient or founded by himself, so that the young men of the areas will be well-formed in Greek, Macedonian, really, military discipline. To keep the empire, he's thinking of the future. This was a man, as young as he was, who thought of the legacy he would leave behind. And he makes Babylon the capitalist empire. And he was so impressive in his conquest that to Babylon, under his reign, embassies came from Italy, the Etruscans, from the Celts of Gaul, and even from Ethiopia. So his court at Babylon admitted people from the far ends of the Eurasian continent. And they came as ambassadors, bringing him gifts and news and things. So, but he does have to conquer the West. We don't think of it much, but his plan was to go West now and take the Balkans, Italy, Gaul, Spain. There was no end to his ambition, but he never was able to do so because he died of a fever in 323 BC. He's 33 years of age, most likely as a result of his arrow wound. Some think he might have been poisoned, but there's not real evidence for that. So what happened after him, by the way? He did have a small son uh, with Roxanne, but Roxanne and the son are not going to fare very well. So what happens is that his generals bicker, and they end up, rather than having one of them become the successor, heir of Alexander, have the whole big empire, they break it up. And I'm going to show you what that looks like. Uh, because these are the empires we hear about in um, later histories. This is how his empire is broken up. His general Seleucus gets Persia, essentially. 
Antigonus gets Asia and the what we call the Holy Land. Lysimachus gets, gets this bit, and Cassander gets this bit. Antigonus gets also Sparta and Athens, and Ptolemy gets Egypt. You've heard the name Ptolemy because it, it becomes the names of many, many of the pharaohs. And you may have been tempted to think that Ptolemy was an Egyptian, like a Coptic name. It's a Greek name. These are all Greeks. And soon, Seleucus, by the way, will soon absorb Antigonus so that we will have, in fact, one, two, three, four kingdoms. These appear to be the four kingdoms mentioned by the, in the book of Daniel. That's what we've got. And from this time on forward, what we have is now the Hellenistic period. When we say Hellenistic, it would be a little bit like saying Americanistic, if you like. There's the American and then the Americanistic. Hellenic means Greek, and that would mean the philosophy, literature, and art of the days of Plato and Aristotle and Thucydides and Herodotus, the great classical stuff. Now we get to a new kind of Greek stuff that's not quite as sophisticated or refined as classical Greek, but is worthwhile in itself. So I mentioned the, the library in Alexandria, the museum, the Septuagint. Greek, by the way, is the lingua franca of all that those shaded areas I showed you. It becomes the language of the language of business. Wherever you come from that whole big area, you might have your own language, but you need Greek to speak to people. It's a bit like business English today in Singapore, Hong Kong, or Africa, or wherever. With the result then that all educated people in all these places are at least bilingual, and they are in a sense bicultural. And a good example of that would be St. Paul. St. Paul who's able to quote pagan works in the New Testament that are three easy to denote, see, Greek pagan quotations, and they're all in St. Paul, who yet also was a Pharisee and well-versed in the Hebrew scriptures. St. Paul, in a way, shows you what Alexander did, that a Jew, pious and well-versed in the law like him, would also be educated in Greek and in the literature of the pagan Greeks. That's Alexander. St. John uses, well, Greek. They all use Greek. The New Testament is all written in Greek. Matthew may have been written in Aramaic to begin with, but to get any traction in the world, it needed to be Greek. The Romans adopted Greek as well, which is why uh, you have to wait a bit before you have a Latin Bible. But ultimately, and I'm going to show you, this, this is my, um, my desk crucifix, all right? And a crucifix is really made up of three things altogether. You have the actual cross of wood, usually. You have, have the representation of our dear Lord. That's called the corpus, the body. And then you have this thing up here. It's called the titulus. And as you know from the narratives in the, the four Gospels, the titulus was written in three languages. It was written in Hebrew, in Latin, and in Greek. And if you've ever wondered, why, would, why was that even Greek up there? I get Latin, Roman Empire. I get Hebrew, we're in Jerusalem. Greek? That's why. It was in Greek so that everyone would know what it said. This is Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And by the way, there is in the church of, uh, I think it's the Santa Croce in Jerusalem in Rome, 
there is the titulus. It looks pretty authentic. And interestingly, this is a side note. You know, Hebrew is written from right to left, the other way from English. Well, on that titulus, both the Greek and the Latin inscription are also written in that direction, which makes it that much less likely that it's a forgery from the Middle Ages, because that's a very weirdly specific uh, Jewish way of writing. And the direction of writing was not, I mean, it was kind of settled already, but there's plenty of Greek archaic inscriptions where they go the wrong way, or they go both ways. So it's possible. Anyway, but it's Greek there. Why? Alexander the Great. Roman thought is Greek. What do I mean? The Romans are brilliant at the law. They're good at the army. That's why they admired Alexander. Um, but they're not very good at philosophy. It's hard to name a Greek philosopher. I beg your pardon, a Roman philosopher. Who was there? Cicero, Seneca. But they're not original thinkers. They adopt Greek modes of thought for their philosophy. How? Why was Greek so important? Alexander. And so again, the titulus, and this has to do ultimately with what I'll call the fullness of time that St. Paul talks of. For the fullness of time to occur, we needed a good sound infrastructure for St. Paul's letters to get around Roman Empire. We needed, of course, the Messiah to come from Israel. Salvation comes from the Jews. I mean, clearly, it has to be Jewish. And then we needed an international language and a good, insightful philosophy to provide the mental concepts with which to present the truth of the faith. And St. John begins his gospel saying, in the beginning was the Logos. And all Greek philosophers knew, oh, yes, the Logos. You see? So three legs. Now, Greek art gets around. There is a new kind of art called Hellenistic. I kind of flashed through very quickly. I don't want to spend too much time now uh, on this. But I, I, I will, just so you can see what kind of art is in the former realms. So, I mean, the classical art, you know what that's like. But Hellenistic art gets more, um, how shall I say, personal and... Um, here, here's a good example. For example, you have pictures of dogs. You never would have seen that in classical times. So this is the kind of mosaic you'd see. Um, this is in Alexandria, for example. Has this unswept floor, Hellenistic, very personal. And now I want to get, okay, I've spoken enough, I think, of the Western impact. I want to talk just a little bit about the Oriental impact. Now, here you have a depiction of Heracles, the strong man. He's got his club. He's ripped with muscles, stocky man. And then here is from a coin from Afghanistan. Remember Bactria? It's written all in Greek on the sides. This is the Hellenistic kingdom of Bactria. Greek, that's a coin of Demetrius. And this is Heracles again with his club. The next one, now this is the Buddha. And who protects the Buddha? This stocky, strong-looking, European-looking man with a club. It's Heracles, although now he's called Vairapani. And ultimately, when you go farther deep into the history of Buddhism and farther east, you will find this muscular, frightening character, again with a club. Look at these muscles. And that is Shukongo Shin who is the Japanese Buddhist manifestation of, uh, of Vajrapani, whom you will see as the deity protecting Buddhist temples in Japan. 
How did we get Heracles in Japan? Alexander. So I think we could agree with Warren Carroll that no one has ever left such an imprint on planet Earth as he did. No mere mortal, that is. And that's it. Thank you, Dr. Papino. It's such a such a um, inspiring and, and uh, beautiful presentation. Um, Kelsey, we got some questions here. Yes. Yeah, we have a lot of questions coming in. Walter wrote in, and I think I saw a couple other ones too on this topic. He is wanting to know, how did Alexandra leave behind a maintenance crew to maintain Greek governance in the places he conquered without spreading his army down to nothing? Excellent question. This is the question that dogs any big general. It dogged Napoleon. I mean, God help us, it dogged even, I mean, it dogged Adolf Hitler in a much more modern world. Because after all, when, I mean, when he begins, we have to look at the scale of this thing. When he crosses over into Asia from Europe, he crosses the Hellespont in 334, he has 43,000 infantry and half, and five and a half thousand horsemen troopers. How did he do it with that? And then how did he spread like this? Because he did achieve it. His army snowballed as he went along. I mean, he lost men, you know, to death, obviously. But others joined him. Persians did, even after the defeat. But all the way through, others joined him. So that's number one. Number two, he left behind Macedonian governors. But generally speaking, what happens in any of these empires is that once you remove, in this case, the Persian emperor and the very top men of the Persian empire, all the administrators below, well, their job is to administrate, or to administer, I should say. That's their job. And so they'll simply transfer their loyalty to whoever's new. And he was able, shrewdly, to treat them well, to treat the local population, generally speaking, well enough. This is before he went down the Indus Valley and, and things got nasty, but to leave in place the administrations of the Persians whom he found, but just by putting a Macedonian at the top, and if possible, having the Macedonian's governor marry a young woman, a lady from the local elites. So that's one of the ways in which he did it. Did it work? As far as it went, it worked, but not 100%, which is why, by the one the way back, he had to sort of put the clocks back on time, so to speak, and punish those who were abusing their power. But by and large, that's how it, and which means then that ultimately, by the end of the whole story, his army is a very international looking affair with people from all over the place. And that's why he had to establish the academies, just to make sure that everyone down the line would know what at that time was the best military uh, tactics and strategy. We're going to turn to Ahmed. Hello, Dr. Pepino. I got uh, two questions. Uh, did Alexander the Great divide the kingdom between his generals, or did they like kind of divide among themselves after he died? They divided among themselves after he died. He had not anticipated the division of his empire. Okay, and my second question, whenever they translated the Septuagint, what did they like make? Did they compose like one unit or just like scrolls back then? Oh, it would have been in scrolls. In fact, regarding that, so the Septuagint is the, the first Greek version of the Old Testament. And there were no codexes. By a codex, I mean a book like this one. 
in those days. Everything was scrolls, and you can't put the whole Bible in a scroll. So yes, it, in fact, a book like Isaiah's would have to be several scrolls. And there are two stories here. Father Hezekiah can tell us what his, his uh, people say here. But there are two traditions regarding the Septuagint. One of them, so the, the Pharaoh, Macedonian, invites these scholars down from Palestine to translate it, 70 men. And the tradition comes in two versions. Version number one, each of the 70 men translated all of the Bible. And then when they came out of their scriptoria, it must have taken a while, they compared notes and they had all written exactly the same version. And that, that's the part of the tradition in which St. Augustine is, and that it was a proof that was inspired. Another tradition is that they divided up the work. And Isaiah was divided, in fact, among, uh, I, I guess, three men, among whom the man who translated um, Isaiah, is it seven? Uh, is, is it chapter seven? Father, a virgin shall give birth in Isaiah. Yeah, and he saw the word in Hebrew, and he, the translator, you know the story, Father Bethanaidu, said, it can't mean virgin because virgins don't have children. So I'll write young woman. And an angel appeared and stayed his hand and said, no, no. It's virgin. You will see this happen in your days. And that manifestly young Palestinian translator lived another 250 years, and his name was Simeon. And he saw the Virgin Mary with the baby boy. And now you understand the sigh of relief. Nunc dimitis, now, O Lord, dost thou finally let thy servant go. He was 270. So that's the Septuagint. Is that? So, Father, how does that work out in, the, in your liturgical tradition or, or theological tradition? What's the? Yeah, I don't know about the uh, about the uh, different you know ways that came about. I was just going to mention that we have a great talk at the institute on how the Bible came to be. Ooh. So, if anybody wants to go down that road and look a little deeper into that, you're welcome uh, to do so. It's, it's, uh, it's and, and while you're mentioning scripture, Doctor McManus, I'm going to come to you in a second. I wanted to bring two, uh, two things together, and that is, can you tie what you shared with us to the first chapter of the book of Maccabees, which you mentioned, I think, at the beginning of your talk. I'm wondering if they kind of come back to that now at the end. But, but alongside that, also, uh, this question from Greg Nowak, who says, is it true that Alexander the Great is the only person who actually read about himself in Scripture? This is kind of cool. I didn't know about this before. Check this out. Josephus, this is why I love the Institute family. You know, <laughs> you guys are serious. Yeah. Josephus and Antiquities of the Jews, Book 11, Chapter 8, describes how when Alexander was conquering the area of the Holy Land in 332 BC, the high priest and other members went out of Jerusalem and met him, showing him the scroll of Daniel, Chapter 7, that mentions him as a third conquering kingdom presented as the leopard. By the way, if anybody wants to get into that business, you can listen to my brother's talk on the Book of Revelation goes back and talks about all of that business. And uh, we'll link that again in our post-game uh, email to all of you. But uh, Dr. Papino, you want to comment on that? Yes. I want to say two things. Number one, he that Josephus does, I, I think I mentioned it along the way there, mentions that event where he's taught, he, he, he sees himself there. Uh, but of course, he can't have read it himself because the Greek, the, <laughs> the Bible was yet to be put into Greek. So it must have been told to him from the Hebrew as it was there by the priests at Jerusalem. That is certainly the case. Now, is he the only person to have read about himself 
that needs qualifications. Part of it is I'm, I don't know enough to answer the question. No, I do know that our Lord read about himself in there all the time. When he was 12, he gave a whole Bible study about himself <laughs> in, in the temple. So certainly at least one other person read about himself in there. But did any other, but I understand the question, did any other mere mortal man, historical figure, that sort of person, I don't know that anyone else ever did. Do you know, Father? I mean... I'm just going to take a stab at the apostles, okay? Because uh, right. they weren't all martyred all early. And right. So, right. Um, but of course... And they would have read about the 12 tribes of Israel. If they understood that it applied to them, they read. They were reading about themselves. So, but in terms of a, a someone who's outside, let's say, of the sacred history, strictly speaking, I don't know. Cyrus? Did Cyrus, Cyrus. read about himself? Maybe. I don't know. I mean, there are prophecies about him. Maybe he did. I don't know if it's recorded that Cyrus read the prophecies regarding uh, his actions. You know, I, Isaiah I to, 45? I just want to point people... Isaiah 45. To, I, I, yeah, I want to also point people to this story of Cyrus. Fantastic. Because every time I read it, my hair on my back goes up. Uh, you know, but you gotta, if you want to kind of go a little bit more into this about God's work among uh, p- pagan people, Cyrus is the, for me... The, the best example, along with Alexander the Great, of, uh, of God's intervention. And, and you could look, just make a note for yourself, the last chapter of Second Chronicles and the first chapter of Ezra. And when you read that, you realize this guy is a pagan of pagans, okay? And God sends his Holy Spirit upon him and brings about a conversion which, which is a, a transforming moment in salvation history. It's amazing. Dr. McManus, you take yourself off mute. I'm, I'm coming to you now. And uh, welcome to ask your question of Dr. Pino. Go ahead. Sure, yeah. I was uh, thinking about, as you were talking about the Septuagint and looking at the evolution of sort of Latin over time from ancient to sort of classical to sort of ecclesiastical, did that, that type of uh, transition occur as well with the Greek language? Uh, can you comment on that? Yes, thank you for asking. Actually, it's interesting you should ask that. I was telling a, a colleague of mine who's a philosophy, actually, professor at uh, the Diocesan Seminary of the Diocese of Lincoln, and that's exactly the question he asked me. His question was, what Greek did Alexander bring? And did it make, was it different to the other Greek we know and so forth? Here's the answer. And once again, actually, this allows me an opportunity to explain how, how Alexander impacted the Greek language itself before even spreading it. When you read classics in Greek, where, so whether you're reading Plato and Aristotle on the one hand, or Thucydides, or Herodotus, or Homer, or Hesiod, and so forth, or the great poets... Now, remember, there was no great big Greek empire before Alexander. I mean, Sparta and Athens did, you know, spread a bit. But you look at them, they're really small. And the Greeks tended to spread out and then become individual little city-states, each with its own dialect. So there was the Greek of Athens, which was the Greek, the Attic Greek that we think of as classical Greek. But that was just the language of Athens, if you see what I mean, and surrounding area. And that's the, that's the Greek, by the way, that was brought to Macedonians when they were learning how to speak proper Greek, and they brought in people from Athens. Um, but yet already, by this time, Greek has evolved, as any language does, and it had become closer to the language used by the gospel writers, and that's the famous Koine Greek. 
The Greek that Alexander brought around was Koine Greek. So it was there was some development as Greek through time, on the one hand, as in language, but also it was a language that kind of brought together, it was mainly Attic, mainly from Athens, but also took elements from all these other dialects and brought that into one hybrid, workaday, understandable by everyone Greek. And that is the Greek that was brought, brought to all these huge swaths. And it became a language that became international and standard, really. It, uh, it stopped breaking off into small dialects because it was used for communication from one end to the next. It did keep evolving a little bit through time, becoming a little simpler by the time you get to the evangelists and St. Paul. Now, when it comes to the New Testament, of course, you have to add on to that the fact that these are Jews, Hebrews, writing in Greek, so there's that behind it. But the Greek they're aiming at, even though you can sometimes see through the page the underlying uh, Hebrew they're thinking, or Aramaic they're thinking, but that what the, the Greek that they're aiming at is this late, in a sense, the Greek that Alexander brought around the place, which is new and distinct to the Greek of Aristotle, Plato, and all those other fellows. Although if you know one, you can read the other. It is much more like, for example, the, the difference between the English, say, of Dickens and the English of this week's bestseller among novels. The, the, that's the difference. I mean, they're obviously the same language, just a few different words and slang terms, and the grammar may be a bit different. So yes, that, that is correct. I, I hope that answers your question. If you have any follow-ups, I'll, I'll be glad to entertain those too. Great. Dr. Pepino, we have some questions coming in about the person of Alexander the Great. So I'm going yes. to combine two here. One from Veronica, who asks, what can we say about his personal life? Yes. And then would you consider Alexander to be a virtuous and admirable leader? Oh, okay. Yes and no. Now, I'm going to quote to you. Actually, this is a, a good book, a reference book for you to have. This is the Oxford Classical Dictionary. It's gone through several editions. It's one of those fat books that they have in libraries. And if you want to have something in your library, I think, it, and if you're interested in antiquity, get yourself the Oxford Classical Dictionary. I've had the second and third edition. The editors uh, with very Oxonian names, Hornblower and Sporforth editors. These are names you just cannot make up. And they, here's what they say regarding this very issue. His personality is elusive thanks to the tendency in antiquity to adduce him, to present him as a moral example of good or of evil, and the propensity of us moderns to endue him with the qualities we would admire in ourselves. Okay, so that's kind of interesting. Watch out. He can become like a lump of clay that you mold into the image you want. Did he have virtues? I cannot believe that someone who was personally educated by the great thinker about what virtues are, Aristotle, did not have some kind of virtue molded into him. I mean, he must have. It was Aristotle was his. So, I mean, besides having our Lord himself as your teacher, in the strictly natural realm of natural virtues, Aristotle is pretty good as, you know, runner-up, shall we say. So I suspect he did have virtues. I suspect... And you see stories about him, but again, are these stories true? Well, you see a man of temperance. Those of you who are, you know, Aristotelians will know what I mean when I say that the, 
beyond continent, he was in fact temperate, meaning it actually had become part of his nature to take food and drink in the proper amounts and all these things. You see it in things, you know, for example, where he refuses the last glass of water the entire army has, they're all dying of thirst, says, no, I will not drink. That's pretty virtuous. But then there are plenty of inexcusable things too, like these massacres of civilian populations in the Indus Valley. I mean, so it's a mixed bag like any human being, besides, of course, those who are immaculately conceived or divine. Now, on a personal level, though, we do, on the other hand, have a pretty good idea of what he looked like. One of the things he was known for was this kind of an interesting term. He had an anastolic haircut. What does that mean? It meant that his hair in front kind of jutted right up, and he combed it back. He parted down the middle and combed it back so it was like wings, you know, like handsome young actors of the 1970s, kind of, you know, the hair like this and a bit long. Bjorn Borg, except with, you know, he, he had that. In fact, I now, thanks to the computers, were able to uh, take images and provide nearly a photograph of what people look like. There's one on the internet, but I'll share a screen because I happen to have it. So there you go. What do you think, ladies? Mm? <laughs> kind of a good-looking fella. And he, unfortunately, I can't see all the way up to his head. There we go. Yeah, we don't. But his hair did kind of go up like that. It was it stood up and curved down, and he was known for that. And the Macedonians tend to be fair. So true. And these the eye color, the hair color, seems like it would match up the kind of person that he was. So there he is. There's Alexander the Great reconstituted through the art of. Because a lot of the, we, there were many portraits of him, partly because he he caused them to be made, particularly on coins, because coins are the propaganda, the kind of the propaganda internet of the ancient world. If you want to propagate a message in the ancient world, you mint coins with that message on them, because then the coins go all over the place. So he had his portrait on there, and then things in Greek saying, you know, favored by God, whatever. So we know we have a pretty good idea what he looked like, and there's a computer rendition of the man right there. Thank you, doctor. We're gonna to conclude tonight with a comment from my daughter, Mariana Angelina okay. Carnazzo. She says, how funny, I just saw pop up, pop up on the screen from Catherine Merch, who we know, friend, a friend of ours who asked, is Plutarch's biography of Alexander worth reading? And, and my daughter responded, how funny, that's my homework tonight. That exact <laughs> chapter or that exact story from uh, Plutarch's Lies. Plutarch's Lies, of course, is Dr. Doctor Tell Us, uh, because you know this is this is one of the tragedies, and this is what we're involved in at the Institute, is that our patrimony has been stolen, our literary patrimony, our historical patrimony, our uh, linguistic patrimony. As Catholics, we gotta get it back. Just give us, give us your 30-second elevator pitch on Plutarch's Lives. Oh yeah, read it. What can I say? Now, Plutarch's like, now there are many classics. And, but Plutarch is perfect for modern man because it's made up of these nice bite-sized biographies. You can sit down for 20 minutes, half an hour, and you've read it. Furthermore, okay, if you can read ancient Greek, go for it. If you don't read ancient Greek, learn it. But don't wait until then because Plutarch's Lives of the Noble Grecians and Romans was translated by John Dryden, who in his own right is a classic of the English language. So you get not only to read the good stuff, the content of Plutarch, but you get to read it in some of the most beautiful English ever written. And it matches because now this is a, a, a not very well known fact. Some of the best writers of the English language 
were not raised in English. They were raised in Greek and Latin. Okay. And so they're perfectly at ease with Greek and Latin. And when they put it into English, the English, it has a beauty of its own. It's kind of old-fashioned English for us. But the beauty it has very often is the borrowed glint of the classical gold beneath. So you nearly can put your hand through the English translation and touch the beauty of the Greek even if you don't know it. Read John Dryden's translation while you learn Greek, and once you know Greek, you can read it in the original. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.